Welcome to the Testimony Podcast, people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. I'm your host, Andrew Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you can join us for this conversation. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Testimony Podcast. My guest for this episode is someone who knows all about shame, addiction and desperation. Kat Etherington grew up in a stable and loving family in Norfolk in England, but at the age of 16, she started to get into alcohol and drugs and her life spiralled out of control. What followed was a decade of addiction, pain and torment, which only began to end when, as a person of no faith, she wandered into a church and met with the infinite compassion of Jesus. Since then, there have still been difficulties and hardships in her life, but even in times of doubt and questioning, Kat found herself called by God to a ministry to set others free from the pain that she had felt. That calling led her into the work that she's involved in today with the Naked Truth Project, a ministry for those who are struggling with pornography addiction and their partners. This is Kat's story. Kat, welcome to the Testimony Podcast. It's great to have you as my guest today. Looking forward to having a chat with you. I wonder if you could tell us, just to start off with, a little bit about yourself, your background, your upbringing, um, and uh, just to give us a little bit of context about you. Yeah, sure. So my name's Kat Etherington. That's my married name. Um, I am in the northeast of England in a little town called Bishop Auckland, which is fairly close to Durham. Um, and we've been living in this house for just over a year, having lived in other parts of Durham. I live at home with my husband, who is a Baptist minister and a healthcare chaplain. Um, our two daughters, who are 18 and 16, so just on the verge of adulthood. Um, our little Lassa Apso and our Romanian rescue dog um, completes our household. Um, I'm not a northerner, as you can probably tell by my accent, um, although I actually was born in Halifax my parents were northerners but I've been um, kind of all over the country and and spent a lot of my life in East Anglia I kind of grew up in Norfolk um, in a small town just outside of Norwich in terms of my background, as I said, my parents were Northerners, but my dad was a um, a teacher for naughty boys schools back in the 1980s. And so um, actually it was because of his job that we moved around a lot because um, a lot of the schools that had previously been um, residential schools were closing down. And so we would move quite a lot with his job. Um, and he did that for the whole of my life. Although previous to that, he'd been a police officer in Manchester in the 1970s. And my mum worked with adults with learning difficulties um, sort of locally to, to where we lived. And I used to volunteer with her sometimes taking the the um, adults out to the, the Norfolk show and places like that when I was young. Gosh, what else to say about me? I grew up in a really sort of normal, stable family home, not spiritual in any way. My dad was a staunch atheist. Um, and he and my husband, up until the day that my dad sadly died, would have epic theological debates about the existence of God and theodicy. And, um, and my dad never got any closer to believing in God, much to my husband's uh, regret, I think. 
And so we didn't really talk about sort of spiritual things in my house very much when I was growing up. And yeah, I guess the sort of crux of my story happens when I hit adolescence. Although I would describe my household as being pretty stable, my parents were married right up mm. until my dad died a few years ago. And, um, you know, financially, we were secure as a family. Um Actually, when I hit about 16, I started experimenting with drugs and alcohol um, and I became pretty chronically addicted to heroin between the ages of 16 and 26. And so even though and it was quite, you know, it's quite confusing to put those two things next to each other, this Mm. um, sort of stable from the outside looking in pretty privileged childhood and upbringing that leads to a chronic heroin addiction that played out in my life for, mm. for 10 years. I got sober and clean when I was 26. So I'm quite intrigued by this because it, it seems to challenge a stereotype, mm. which is that the kids that end up maybe in drugs and, and having all those kinds of problems are the ones who come from single parent families or there's a lot right. of uh, disruption. There are a lot of problems and that's that's then where they go. But it doesn't sound like that was the case for you then particularly. So how how did it happen for you? How, how did you happen? get how did you get caught up in this stuff? Yeah. And you know, it's it's funny because actually that was my perception too. And and I can remember, you know, I ended up going to rehab like three times. And I can remember sitting in a group therapy session in the rehab center that I went to. And this person's got a story of growing up in a violent household and this person was sexually abused. And and I didn't have that. And actually what that did for me was create a whole lot more shame because well, Mm. I didn't have a story, I didn't have, and I remember saying to my counselor, like, I really wish something terrible had happened to me. And she's like, why would you say that? And I said, well, because it doesn't make sense otherwise. Like I had this perception that these other people had kind of good reason to be the way that they were. And I didn't think that I had that. And so Actually, what for a while I was absolutely convinced that I had repressed something terrible. There must be something terrible in my history. I need to go get hypnotherapy. I need regression therapy. I need to go back and find this thing. And actually, as I spent almost a decade in and out of therapy and loads of time in um, in rehab centers and everything else, what I came to understand was that for me, my family dysfunction was much more subtle than Mm -hmm. the big story but it was in fact there and so my parents my you know my parents were very um Victorian in their values and there was a a real sort of authoritarian uh, ness to my to my household I was the youngest of two children and the only daughter um, and so my dad didn't really want his little girl to grow up um, I lived a very restricted childhood and what played out in our family home was was I guess in some ways a typical lack of emotional awareness lack of emotional communication and I picked up through that experience these subtle shame-based messages things like when I would share how I was feeling my dad would say to me don't be silly which was his loving attempt at kind of you know soothing his child but I internalized that as oh well emotions are silly 
and I shouldn't have them, mm. but I do have them. Mm. And so I must be silly. And those tiny little seeds of shame, I guess, as you go through life and you've got that kind of shame, shame lens in your glasses, they became reinforced over and over. And I just, I think really, you know, I've been in recovery for 14 years and I often in my work with clients at Naked Truth Project now look back over that 14 years and re- and what I've realized is it's really all about shame for me. It was really mm. all about not feeling okay with who I who I was. And so my first addiction became sort of people pleasing, if you like. I became this kind of social chameleon who would be whoever you needed me to be so that I could fit in and be accepted because really at my core, I believed that something about me was unacceptable. Mm. That is that is interesting. And I, I wonder in terms of all of the experiences that you've had to date, the professional experiences, and maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, what you do and uh, the, the kind of work that, that, that you get involved with. How much of the root problem is shame, self-worth, lack of love, that kind of stuff, that, that kind of cluster of issues? I think it's an issue for most people. And, you know, I I know that's quite a bold statement, but that, you know, I talk to a lot of people, not just people who are, you know, coming for help, um, which is the work that I do now, but also, you know, I guess when you're when you're open about yourself, people tend to want to tell you about their stuff too, you know? And so yeah. it, it really feels to me like uh, like it's a core condition of humanity to feel this sense of not good enough. And, you know, I guess I'm always conscious in my story, like it's not it's not really my mum and dad's fault. It's, you know, they they are doing the best they can with what they had. And, you know, their their parents were were the world war parent generation. And so, you know, it's it, I, I just think there's a a sort of an inherent uh sense for people that that they they're not enough. Um I don't know if that's our education system. I think that's part of that compounds it because we have a very performance-based culture. And so, you know, if you're if you're not good enough at some things, maybe you feel like you're not good enough. But yeah, mm. I think culturally we we have a bit of a setup that reinforces that. So if you get if you get hint mm. of that in childhood, then then mm. you can easily perceive everything through that lens. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about the kind of life you were leading then between 16 and 26 when you were dealing with these issues? Yeah, it was, I guess, in some ways, pretty typical of what what drug addiction looks like. And, you know, heroin is an expensive drug. And so to to maintain and grow a heroin addiction costs money. So between the ages of 16 and 26, my life looked like a lot of um, sofa surfing and sort of living. I left home when I was 16 um, because my mum and dad were starting to un- to uncover what I was involved with and mm. I didn't want to face that. So I just left. Mm. Um, I mm. left at 16 and I never went back. And that's a scary world for a 16, mm. 17, 18 year old to be operating in. Um, so my, my life involved either uh, dealing drugs or being involved with people who were dealing drugs. I became a, a kind of a career criminal for a while, which is way less glamorous than it sounds. It, it was like nicking bacon and cheese and selling it down some scummy pub for a few quid here and there. And, you know, it's kind of Groundhog Day. You know, you t- it was like living the same day over 
over and over and over. I would get up. I would have to go find money. I would do that any way I could. I had little bits of jobs here and there, and but I could never sustain employment. Mm. And so I would go out, commit whatever crime I needed to commit to, to get my money for that day. I would go get drugs. I would use my drugs and then it would start again, sometimes two or three times in the same day. Um, so it's this kind of treadmill of a life. Now, sadly, what happened for me during that 10-year period was that I met a man who we we moved to Scotland together. He was Scottish. I met him in Norfolk. We moved up to Dundee together thinking, this will fix everything. You know, they call it doing a geographical, like, oh, we'll just move somewhere else um, and we won't take any of our problems with us. But sadly, as I discovered, the problems were internal, not external. And so we moved to Dundee, tried to sort of redeem our lives. That wasn't that didn't work out. And I actually went on to have both of my daughters whilst I was still using drugs and in my addiction. Um, So that was pretty awful. And I think, you know, it's funny when I, when I reflect on the sort of the way that addiction works, there were always these kind of like lines that, well, I'm not doing that. So it's not that bad. And so this line would sort of push back, oh, well, you know, I'm not injecting drugs. So it's not that bad. But then when I was injecting drugs, I had to find a new line so that it could still be not that bad. And that was a hard one for me because I'd always had this kind of like, oh, I won't, I won't be a drug mum. You know, that's that really felt like a line that I would never cross. And here I was at 21 being kept in hospital because my daughter was born with the with the possibility of being addicted to drugs Mm. herself. Mm. Um, Now, I was lucky and it was luck rather than judgment that neither of my girls were very sick. But, yeah, that was a, a big sort of consequence to to the life that I was living. And eventually, social services took my kids away from me when my youngest daughter was about nine months old. Her dad was arrested um, for drug, running drugs for a Scottish drug dealer. And okay. the police knocked down my door and brought social services with them and took my kids. So how old were you when that happened? So I was 23 when I had my second daughter. So it would have been around sort of 23, okay. 24. Yeah. Okay. And can you describe for us the kind of emotions you went through when they just people arrived and just took your children away? It's terrifying. I think, you know, that's another characteristic of addiction is denial. Um, like things like that just don't, you know, that, that will never happen. Um, my dad always used to say in years after we processed kind of what we'd been through, he would say to me that he thought that my addiction was a, was a combination of ignorance and arrogance. And as much as I was offended by that at the time, when I look back now, I'm like, actually, that's probably a pretty good kind of assessment of how it was. There was, there was parts of my experience where I just didn't know. Like I, I, I joke that I hadn't even seen train spotting the first time I took heroin you know and so there was lots I didn't know I'd lived yeah. a very sheltered life and then yeah. on the other hand there's this arrogance of it will never happen to me and so you know when the consequences start getting really big it really begins to shatter that denial and you begin to realize oh this this is really a problem um, even though I've somehow been able to hold on to this illusion of manageability so mm. yeah when they when they take your kids away it's a shock to the system and for me things got worse after that 
You know, there's right. this kind of sense <clears throat> of, oh, it will get better. There's a there's a really serious consequence. She'll sort herself out now. But in fact, what happened to me was that they kind of took away the only thing that I was trying to hold it together for. Um, and so now I didn't I didn't have to do that. And I think I remember my social worker saying something like, oh, I've never seen you, never seen you look like you're under the influence of drugs until your kids were gone. And I'm like, well, yeah, I've not I've not got anything to to hold it together for. And it yeah. got worse. Okay. So your problems got worse in a sense after your children were taken away and you would be what 23, yeah, 24. 24-ish, yeah. And you said earlier that this period of addiction lasted until when you were about 26. Yeah. So so like what happened after a couple of years? Because it sounds like you were kind of on a downward spiral, really. Yeah. But, so what happened? So what happened was the kids went, so I was, I'm in Scotland. My parents are in Norfolk. Um, they took the kids the first time. And up until that point, living in Scotland when your parents are in Norfolk is a great way to pretend that everything is fine. And so, you know, they weren't really aware of what was going on. They knew they knew there was a history that, you know, there were lots of occasions where they had become aware that we were using drugs, but I think, you know, out of sight, out of mind, they, they weren't fully aware. Um, so at that point they began to intervene. Um, and I actually spent quite, quite a lot of time sort of moving between Norfolk and Scotland, trying to maintain contact with my kids. You know, it's crazy the way that addiction works. Cause during that time I would be in Norfolk with my mum and dad and my children, and I would be receiving, uh, heroin in letters and through the post from people that I knew in Scotland, they would send it to me in the post down in Norfolk. And I was really good at sort of playing the game, you know, so mm. I convinced social services that I was doing better. Um, you know, I got sneakier. Um, I, I handed in clean urine samples that weren't mine, but they didn't know that they weren't mine. And eventually social services said, OK, you seem to be doing better. Um, and they agreed that I could have the kids home. And so I moved into Lowestoft in Suffolk and, you know, this was going to be a fresh start. But the problem was that I hadn't really gotten any better. Um, and so eventually um, social services intervened again. And this time my parents said that they couldn't take the kids. They were afraid that it was that, you know, that I was never going to recover, I was never going to get better. And they already felt like they were sort of too old to commit to raising another lot of kids, which yeah. is totally yeah. fair enough. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't think they really understood what that meant for them. Um, but, you know, the kids went into foster care at that point in time, which is another layer of consequences. You know, now I've got to go through supervised contact and there are limitations on that. Um, and that that was around the time where things started to get kind of a little bit more serious for me. And I remember a social worker saying to me, maybe you should go to rehab. And it's really funny when I think about this now, but I was like, what do you mean rehab? Like that's for real drug addicts and <laughs> celebrities. And I didn't think I was either of those things. And he was like, yeah, well, you're not a celebrity. Um, and that was the end of his sentence. And he was very kind. And so he pulled out this giant book and he said, what kind of rehab do you want to go to? 
Um, and I, I said, I'll go anywhere. I'm, you know, I'm so totally desperate to recover. I'll go anywhere, okay. but I don't want to go anywhere that's got anything to do with the 12 steps. Cause I'd heard about this 12 step program and how they were going to force me to believe in God. Um, and I didn't want to do that. <laughs> and so he threw this book on the table behind him and said, well, that narrows your options a bit. Um, and I went off to some lovely activity based place in Devon and I flew kites and I surfed and I rode horses on Dartmoor and I didn't get any better um, really and so eventually I did end up in a 12-step program in Alcoholics Anonymous um, much to my disdain um, and that Mm. was where I started to really recover ironically. Mm. Where were you in terms of your faith at that time as you were going into maybe the first rehab one in Devon and about that time? I was nowhere. Um, you know, I didn't, I'd not had any real inclination toward anything spiritual. We never talked about anything like that at home. Ironically, I knew every song that we sang in assembly and, you know, I could still hear the lyrics Mm. to give me oil in my lamp and all of those kinds of things, but Mm. it didn't, it didn't mean anything to me. And yet, you know, when I start, when I rocked up to Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, I heard people talking about recovery and the first first thing I noticed there was that there was hope and I hadn't felt Mm. hope for such a long time you know and these people were gathered in little church halls and community centers telling stories about what their lives used to be like that sounded a lot like mine um, and what it was like now and they were saying God did that and so yeah I can't I don't think it can fail to get your attention I was just like oh okay didn't really love the idea of God um you know, they talked about prayer and meditation. And, you know, I, I think with with very little experience, I just had this idea of like, oh, they're going to make me sit cross-legged. I'm going to have to chant. I'm going to have to do all these things. And I didn't want to do them. But I also think that what I ended up with was what sometimes they call in recovery circles, the gift of desperation, where eventually I just got to a point where I was like, you know what, if if it's the God thing that's going to save me, then I'll give it a go um, because I had no other choices. I was very, very much at the end of my own resources. Mm. So coming to that point where you're beginning to encounter things of faith, um, I wondered if you could just give us two or three examples then in your life where you do feel as if Jesus has been close to you, he's been walking with you, he's been a companion with you, good times or bad times, whenever. Can you think of some stuff? Yeah, there's a couple of things that stand out to me. And, you know, I often tell the story of how I ended up in a church, which is to say that the the rehab that I was in, um, it was kind of more of a sober living community at that time. It was actually right across the road from this really big Baptist church. Um, And Sunday in the rehab was visit day. And nobody liked me very much at that point in my recovery. (laughs) And so nobody came to visit. And so Sunday was always just a really painful day for me as all the parents showed up and they were there with their families. And, you know, I wasn't getting any visits because my parents were understandably very, very cross about the whole kind of mess that I'd created for myself and for their grandchildren. And at the time, I was trying to impress social services by doing something wholesome. And so I said, okay, I'll just, I'll go to the church on a Sunday and try to you know kind of meet some people who aren't drug dealers and and it was really all about impressing social services and yet I would go into that church on a Sunday morning it was quite a contemporary Baptist church so shout out to 
to London Road Baptist Church in Lowestoft. Um, and I, I used to say it was like going to Christian karaoke. There was something uh, in the sort of corporate worship that um, I loved to sing. I didn't know that I loved to sing because I hadn't known anything about really who I was. And so I really enjoyed the worship. Um, and what used to happen every Sunday morning is that I would I would start to sing and I would, you know, pick up on the atmosphere as, as everybody worshipped together. And I would weep and weep and weep, these silent tears just falling down my face. Um, and people would say to me, why are you crying? And I'd say, I don't know, I don't know. And when I look back at that time now, I do so with such fondness as I realized mm. it was kind of like mm. being washed. There was just something mm. healing that was happening to me, even though at that time I would have told you, I don't even really know what I think about Jesus. And I'm not sure if I even care. Something was happening to me. It was like sort of peeling back layers of defenses and something vulnerable that I just hadn't ever experienced anywhere else. And I couldn't stop it. Um, you know, and mm. so, just, you know, I've been living this life out on the streets and learn to be tough. And here I am just weeping every Sunday morning. I started to bring folks from the rehab with me. So anybody want to come to church? And so I got kind of got a reputation as being the, the Pied Piper for addicts for coming to church. And I remember the same thing happening to them. I remember one Sunday morning looking to my right and there's a whole pew of these hardened drug addicts just weeping as they're experiencing something they've never experienced before. And so, yeah, that for me was a kind of a, a time of just feeling like Jesus had his arm around me, even though I didn't really know at that point mm. in time what I was experiencing. Wow. So yeah, that was pretty cool. And funnily enough, I kept going back, even though I kept crying. And, you know, that was really the start of opening up to something a little bit more tangible. Up until that point, I'd had a faith that was a power greater than myself, a, a higher power. And, and I started to consider that this idea of Jesus might be important in the middle of it. So that was kind of like the start of my journey. But then some bad stuff happened shortly after I became a Christian. So I'd been in a relationship with a man um, who's not the man I'm married to now. And during that was like for the first three years of my recovery. And I discovered that he had been sort of uh, looking at pornography compulsively and addictively um, in secret throughout the entirety of our relationship. He'd been chatting with other women and men and, you know, sort of cheating on me for this whole time. And, and this was right after I got baptized that this kind of all came out. Um, and so I've been a Christian sort of in the grand scheme of things, five minutes, and I go through something that is intensely painful, more painful than anything I've ever experienced. And I I almost lost my faith before I'd really gotten it because I just couldn't understand how this could be happening at a time when I really felt like I was growing closer to God. It's this whole kind of theodicy question of like, how could he let this happen to me? Mm, um, mm. And yeah, that was a really, really difficult time. There was gossip. There was, you know, even sort of people laughing about stuff. And um, yeah, that was a that was a tough time. And so I think in a way, I kind of lost sight of God in the middle of all that. Um, and yet, 
as I progressed through um, the sort of next stages of my life, I met the man who is now my husband. We, he was the first person I led to, to Christ. And um, we were having this kind of amazing spiritual experience. And I felt God say, you, you can't let other people go through what you've experienced here. Because when I was in the middle of my pain and my, yeah, my betrayal, I suppose, I, I felt really, you know, I just, I, I tried to find help. I couldn't find help. I was afraid. I was alone. I was isolated. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Um, and I, I really began to feel God. You know, some, sometimes people talk about that, that sort of godly discomfort um, or righteous anger or whatever. This was my thing. Like, um, I really felt a sense of God hates what happened to you and he hates that you had to go through it alone and he doesn't want that for other women um and mm. so even in the midst of all that kind of questioning of like who even is God and uh, does he allow you know all the big questions does he allow these things to happen I had a very very clear sense that he was saying you know what there's a job for you in here and the line in that song break my heart for what breaks yours everything I am for your kingdom's cause was a sort of refrain in my head for a long time um, and so just in the middle of feeling all of that my husband and I go to spring harvest and hear Ian Henderson of the Naked Truth Project talking about porn and I'm like oh okay god you've got my attention um, and so begins this next chapter of my life where I gave up my corporate job and I started working for a tiny 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 little Christian charity for next to no money in comparison to what I'd been earning before and just really felt like God put a passion and a purpose into me that I hadn't ever had before. So, you know, and I guess I want to say that's not me saying, oh, well, it all worked out for good. And so it's all fine now. And, you know, hallelujah, there's there's still some messy questions and, and unanswered uh, concepts in there for me. But nonetheless, I, I left that period of my life with a real sense of purpose and calling. Mm. I, I find it interesting that you were talking about how like, there seemed to be a calling forming in your life or a, a, a sense of purpose even while you were questioning God, even while you were in yeah. that, that kind of dark time. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, about that, because some people might think that actually you've got to kind of get your, your act together before God's going to call you, but it yeah. doesn't sound as if that's true. Yeah, and I, I love that you picked that out, actually, because, I mean, who's got their act together, really? You know, if we had to wait until we had our act together, I don't think any, any of us would be doing anything for the kingdom, really. But yeah, and I suppose, like, through all of the questions, this, and, you know, when I talk about a sense of calling or purpose, like I could feel it. It was like a physical thing, like a weight in my chest or a knowing in my gut. Um, and it was unignorable. Um, and, and, you know, I think for me, it was at a time when nothing else really made sense. I couldn't really understand very much else, but this felt true and not a lot else in my life felt true at that point in time. And so it's like, well, you know, there's one thing here that feels like it's reliable, that feels like it's true. And, and so I just did that, you know, I suppose it's that idea that when, when you don't know what else to do, you do what feels right. And that, mm. that's what I did. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now then a little bit more? You say you, you worked for this tiny Christian charity, the Naked Truth Project. So yeah. what do you do for them? 
Yeah, so Naked Truth Project exists with the mission to open eyes and free lives from the damaging impacts of pornography. Um, that's That was the mission that that was there before before me um, and Ian Henderson had started this charity based out of his own story of how pornography had impacted his life mm. um, and you know I was just incredibly grateful to hear somebody talking about it never mind at a Christian conference I was like whoa Christian's talking about porn that's that's pretty progressive and I was really impressed um, and so I just I remember sort of queuing to speak to Ian like you do at things like Spring Harvest and and the queue was too long so I sent him an email instead and just said hey I love what you guys are doing it's really really great but no one's telling my story and Mm. that's what I really wanted to do I was like Mm. okay so you know you're talking about how porn impacts the user you're talking about the women behind the cameras you're talking about um children and young people but nobody's talking about what it feels like when somebody is keeping a secret about their pornography use you know and the stories I was connected with were were sometimes like 40 years of marriage um, where where there's never been any hint of anything and then there's there's this discovery of a uh, history of chronic pornography use. Um, and nobody was talking about that. And so they were very lovely and polite and said, we haven't really got any money and you should pray for us. And it was all very nice. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so um, I went off and I did did my training to um, to work with predominantly women it was to begin with um, who had been impacted by uh, the pornography use and sexual behavior of a partner or a husband but you know I just I just knew that I didn't want to be on my own with that that's hard work it's not you Mm. know this is not easy work and it's it really involves sitting in the mess of people's lives and I just knew I didn't want to do that by myself and so I eventually went back to Naked Truth and said you know what God is still talking to me about it and so I feel like I should still be talking to you about it and they eventually were were in a a place where they could say okay come come do a bit of work for us Um, and so we started started sort of doing support groups for women who were married to men who had these problematic sexual mm-hmm. behaviors mm-hmm. and since then it's just grown and grown and grown and so now we have a recovery program for partners we have a recovery program for men who are seeking to live in sexual integrity whatever that means for them and um so I've had three job titles in the last four years um I was the head of spouse and partner development then I was head of recovery now I'm director of recovery and we've been able to recruit new team and yeah amazing growth through the pandemic as we're seeing lots and lots of people seeking freedom for themselves and restoration mm. for their marriages now I, it's interesting that you you like your work isn't it sounds it's like it's not predominantly with the people who've got the addiction but it's with so I do both actually we've okay. got separate programs for the partners and for the people with the addiction mm. um but I work Uh, I I don't work in our partner program anymore. I work in our men's program, which is for the people tackling the addiction. Um, And I work individually with men, women and couples. And we've got a whole team Mm. of coaches and counsellors who are doing that sort of work with with different people. So if somebody listening to to what you've been saying now, this story, male or female, they know they have some kind of addiction issue with this stuff. They know like they're watching porn or they're addicted to it or this whatever. Um, what what would you say to them to help them begin to kind of come away from that and sort themselves out? 
Yeah, that's a question I I almost always get asked, like, what would you say to the person who's suffering? Mm. And what I would say is that shame kept me in bondage my entire life, Um, you know, and I'm still walking that out. And addiction thrives in secrecy. It thrives in shame. um, And there there can be no recovery there. And so, the you know, the, the hardest, hardest, and yet the most important thing that you can do is tell someone, tell someone safe, tell someone who can connect you in with support. You know, mm. one of the, the most important things about the communities that we run is that they're, they're completely safe, non-judgmental spaces. And I guess that's what you get in a group of recovering addicts together is that, you know, who the heck am I to look at you and say, well, I didn't do that when, when I've got this history that I've mm. got, you know, and so mm. there's something about bringing together a group of people who've had a similar experience that yields a hope that that means that shame can't sustain, you know. And so mm. I think that's what I would mm. say. I would say, you know, the the addiction is lying when it says that there is no recovery. The addiction is yeah. lying when it says that you're worse than anybody else. Um, and there is recovery and there is hope. I can imagine some people though might think. Uh, probably Christians are listening to this vast majority of people listen to this, but, but whether people are of faith or not, they might think, but you're a Christian charity. You're going, you're bound to judge because, you know, Jesus doesn't like porn or mm. whatever. So, so how can you be non-judgmental? How does that work yeah. in the context of the beliefs and the moral framework that, that, that you have as a charity? That's a really great question. I think so here's where I will go tiny little bit theological. My husband's really the theologian in this household. But, um, you know, for me, so really what I should say is there are two arms to the work that we do. So I do the sort of, uh, I said, we open eyes and we free lives. I do the free lives work. I'm uh, over in recovery. We do a bunch of other work, which is kind of designed to go upstream and stop people falling in in the first place, which is our education and awareness work. We talk to school children and churches and communities and parents and and all of the things. Um, And so we are doing work over here too. I think for me, it's about, you know, here's what I know for sure is that it doesn't work to to sort of quote Bible verses at people and hope that they'll pull their socks up. Um, this isn't a, an issue where praying harder is going to fix your problems. It's not an issue where memorizing scripture is going to fix you. Not that the spiritual side of recovery isn't important, but it's a mistake to think that if we just try harder, I was trying really hard for a really long time, you know, and mm. it's funny, my mm. dad used to say to me, why don't you just stop? And I'm like, oh, didn't, didn't think of that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of, of course, it's it's yeah. not as simple as that. Yeah. And so for me, when I think about, well, what what did Jesus do for me? He stood next to me in the church while I wept and figured it out. He bound up my broken heart. He, you know, and I love that, that scripture in Isaiah where it talks about binding up the brokenhearted because it doesn't say we miraculously healed the broken heart. It says we bound it up while we healed underneath we held Mm. it together Mm. um and i think there's just a real picture of who jesus is in that and so for me um what's important about how we approach people struggling whether that's with addiction or shame or trauma um is that we we do that in a way that's incarnational that we show up 
as Jesus. So I don't need to tell you that Jesus doesn't like porn. Probably they already know that. Certainly if they're Christians, that's not going to be news to them. They're not going to go, oh, I didn't realize. I'll just stop. Like, so it doesn't work. It just doesn't work to, mm. to judge them. And so yeah, I'm just I just try to what we try to do is create a space where they can experience the character of Jesus, the mm. character of God. They can know that first and foremost, they are loved and that the response to that love is what happens in mm. their lives. Because actually a lot of a lot of people, especially Christians, they're already coming from a shame-based kind of identity in their faith. They're already coming from this works-based righteousness perspective. They already think that they're not good enough for God. So just tell, confirming that for them isn't going to help mm. what we're trying to do is create a different experience where actually because i know the love of jesus i can love you the way that i think jesus would love you mm. and that's where change can happen i find it interesting to to think, reflect on the fact that actually your first spiritual contact or the first day, the first environment that you came into where you had some kind of spiritual experience in that baptist church there wasn't any judgment it doesn't sound like there was even a particularly a lot of teaching given to you or a lot of instruction or a lot of anything like that. You were just, you just came into a space where you could grieve for a while yeah, and just and be worked on by God, I suppose. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, for sure there were sermons, but that's not what I remember. Because um, no. I didn't need you to be about, taught and needed to be loved. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked about people who have an addiction, but then there will also be people who are perhaps their experiences nearer to yours where they've maybe they've been with a partner or their husband or their wife, I suppose, even for many yeah. years. And suddenly all this stuff comes out and it's devastating. And what, what do you say to those people? Yeah. I, I think what, what those people need to hear more than anything is that they matter. There, there is often a sense of, oh, well, it's all out in the open now. And, you know, there's a sort of a gathering around the, the sinner, if you like, and we're all like, oh, yay, you know, we can, we can do some redemption here. But often that's very much at the expense of the other half of that couple. Mm, um, mm. And they're having deeply different experiences. I, I'm sometimes um, sort of, uh, talk about it's like being on um on different uh escalators you know he's on the way up he's feeling great he's like dumped all the shame he's like oh it's all out in the open it's a weight off his shoulders but in doing so he's pretty much dumped all of that on his wife and so she's on the way down and what sometimes happens is he gives like a cheerful wave on the way up because he's feeling great and she's feeling horrific and you know I think what people don't understand is how destabilizing that experience is because it's not just oh my husband looked at porn it's oh my husband lied to me for 25 years it's who is this man who said he believed this who said these were his values and yet in secret is doing this yeah. what does that mean um so it's much bigger than oh your husband looks at a bit of porn it's you know it's the destabilizing impact that that has on 
on a woman in my case it's mostly women that I work with but it does happen to men um but the you know the destabilizing impact that has on their identity mm. and so what I would say to them is that matters and it's real and there is research that backs up the reality that that creates symptoms that are just like post-traumatic stress disorder for a large percentage of women mm-hmm. um and I would just you know we do a lot of just validating it it makes sense that you feel like you don't know mm. what anything is what you know that anything is true when this thing that you believe to be true turned out to be something mm. else mm. so we're coming towards the end of our conversation now um is there anything else that you wanted to share with people either in terms of types of advice and comment that you've been giving or perhaps in terms of other encounters that you had with God and the way kind of Jesus was your companion during any point of your life is there any, any anything any other stuff you want to say around that um not really I, I suppose the only other thing that comes to mind is is that for me none of this has been you know deeply theological it's not been about what I know about the Bible um you know that stuff is important and of course I draw stuff from that but ultimately this has been for me just a journey of relationship and understanding mm-hmm. who I am in the light of Jesus and mm-hmm. trying to you know people talk about when God looks at you he sees you through Jesus my my kind of practice has been when I look at me can I see me? through Jesus? Can I see me the mm. way that um, mm. that I know that he sees me? And for me, mm. that's just a fundamental thing now. Um, and that's been the single most healing thing. You know, I had that moment where I realized, oh, all that stuff they talk about that Jesus did, he did that for me. Um, and that moment mm. of realizing how very mm. personal that is. And I suppose, you know, that's what I, that's what I hope that, mm. that people will, will know is that that was just as much for you as it was for me. So if anybody's heard all this, Kat, and they're thinking they might be curious, just curious about the work that you do and the Naked Truth Project does, or they might be thinking, I just desperately got to get in touch with you guys because that's just where I'm at some of the things that we've talked about. How do people do that? What should they do? Yeah. So the work that I do um, in the recovery section of Naked Truth is um, on a, its own kind of website, which is um, is nakedtruthrecovery.com. Um, so pretty much what it says on the tin. Um, so you can find out about all of our recovery programs there at nakedtruthrecovery.com. For the wider work of Naked Truth Project as a whole, we have um, the website nakedtruthproject.com. Um, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on um, Instagram and all the usual places that people people would expect to find us. Um, and if anybody is interested in reaching out and connecting with me personally, my email is cat, C-A-T, cat at visibleministries.com. Cat at visibleministries.com. That's right. Great. Okay. Cat, thank you very much for sharing all this with us, sharing a bit of your life, sharing your work, sharing your calling, uh, sharing how you got free, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's been good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Testimony Podcast. You can subscribe to the show on all of the major podcast distributors and also follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast. If you want to find out more about the Christian faith and connect with someone to talk about your experiences or answer your questions, just go to www.christianity.org.uk from wherever you are in the world. You can also contact us by email at thetestimonycast.com 
at gmail.com. That's thetestimonycast at gmail.com. I look forward to sharing more of the stories that matter from people of faith with you soon. Until then, thank you for listening and God bless you.